just to give you a context, at 15 years old, I was I was somebody who was living with 23 other people in the same house. Wow. In a small town of Jaipur, India, my best bet of getting out of that house was to become an engineer. <laughs> and uh, and hopefully in the next, from 15 to another 25 years later, buy a house for me and my family. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars in annual revenue. And now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results, economies, and cultures. There's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this, and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method hello listeners and welcome back to the show i love spending time with forward-thinking entrepreneurs that have mindsets that almost seem like they are light years beyond most business mentalities i'm happy to say that we have another one of those people on the show today ajit nawaka hops on the mic with us to share about how he went from a house of 23 people to becoming the co-founder and ceo of mind valley the founder of evercoach an author and an entrepreneur on the forefront of business thought today Throughout the show, Ajit shares about his life starting in a small village in India, living with 23 family members literally in one home, to becoming the co-founder and CEO of Mind Valley. Later in the episode, Ajit and I discuss concepts like the matrix of practicality, tapping into flow state, and the importance of intuitive intelligence. His story is incredible, and the lessons that he's learned throughout the process is a goldmine of knowledge. You guys, without further ado, let's welcome Ajit to the show. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ajit, my friend, welcome to the show. I am very excited to have you on the mic calling in from the grand city of Los Angeles. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you for inviting me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. And I was learning about you and your history as an entrepreneur and some of the amazing things that you have done. And we want to dive into your story and get some tips and tricks about business that you've learned along your path. But first, I just want to kind of, kind of ask you if you were talking to your 15-year-old self, would you be happy with the results that you've created and... Um, what would you tell that 15 year old self? Actually, I would be stoked. I would be super impressed because it would be rather unbelievable for me where I am today. So I would be so, so, so grateful for, for where I've, uh, I've come this thus far. Uh, because just to give you a context at 15 years old, I was, I was somebody who was living with 23 other people in the same house wow. in a small town of Jaipur, India. My best bet of getting out of that house was to become an engineer <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully in the next from 15 to another 25 years later, buy a house for me and my family. That's what my, 
ideal outcome would have looked like. Like at 15, that's what I was hoping for. I was hoping that uh, I will be 40 or 50 one day. Mm-hmm. I'll finally be able to get out of this house and live in a house of my own. Did you think and you would be in the US or still be in India? No, no. I thought I would be, I mean, I, I never had any ambition to leave India, honestly. Um, yeah, that just happened by chance. So <laughs> no, I wouldn't have imagined myself anywhere. And I haven't been in India for almost 10 years now. So before even the U.S., I was living somewhere else. So I've been traveling for quite a bit. What would you What would you say to that young version of yourself? It's going to be okay. It's going to be. It's what I would tell myself too. <laughs> it's going to be okay. You're going to be just fine. Yeah. Uh, that's a great reply. I'd like to um, ask you more about that further on in the show. But we want to get to know you as the entrepreneur that you are today. I know you have some amazing experiences. You're the founder of Evercoach, worked with Mind Valley, have just released or getting to release a book and have written another book also, I believe, the book of coaching. Let's go back to that young boy that was in India living with 23 other people because I don't think most of the people on the podcast that listen to podcasts could imagine what it's like to live with 23 <laughs> other people. So I'd love to hear, hear how you got your start so in i i grew up in india in a small town called jaipur and as i was growing up it wasn't only our family that was living in the same house it was my cousins and my parents cousins and my grandparents and my grandparents cousins and we all shared the same space so we all kind of like squeezed into the small house and lived in our different kind of little bubbles but still sharing the same space we had common kitchens common toilets you know that type of whole whole thing uh, and I'm introverted by nature. So that actually was a double whammy for me because that not only was I in a constrained space with limited space, I was somebody who actually enjoys personal time. I really appreciate when I can just go with myself and be with myself for a little bit, if not longer. And so for me, growing up was really, really hard, more emotionally and mentally than physically. I had really kind parents. I have really kind parents that took care of all our needs except the whole need of being able to have the kind of space mm-hmm. and the wealth that we would appreciate. But other than that, they were really kind. They went, they overreached at all times to take care of us. Uh, but but that's kind of how I grew up. I grew up in that reality. And so, of course, abundance became my number one priority. Uh, my number one priority was to get out of that house and have a house of my own and have a car and have my own vehicles and have my own things. And that's really what I wanted for the greater part of my life for all of my childhood basically that was my dream and like I was mentioning before all I hoped for at that time was one day I'll be able to get out of this house (laughs) buy a new house where I lived with just my parents and and that was the big dream and I hoped to get it at 40 and in India when you have a dream like that usually you're recommended oh so you want to make wealth, become an engineer, a doctor, or an accountant and so so I was like all right so that's what we got to do i didn't like the whole biology thing i didn't really think accounting was my thing so i said i'm going to be a computer engineer because i loved computers and i loved physics so and math so i was like all right this seems like a perfect fit let me do engineering but as i studied for the exams i realized that's not for me i'm going to be a really bad engineer because i hated everything about the study (laughs) of engineering so like it's not only about loving the subjects you got to love what you're going to actually end up doing to be happy doing it as well, right? right? So I might make the money, but I won't be happy. So I kind of wrote a letter to my father, which sounds really odd in today's time, but I actually wrote a physical letter to my dad saying, Dad, I think I I have to quit engineering. (laughs) I would be a really bad engineer. I'll be really unhappy. 
I know this means that I might not be successful at all in my life and that might mean I have to start from scratch, but I think I'll be happier that way. Would you please let me do it? And and my father, like I already mentioned, my parents are so kind. So they're like, listen, son, I can't afford a different education for you. But what I can do is I can support you as far as I possibly can. So know that that I'm here for you if you need anything. But know that that your father's not a wealthy man. I can't give you a preset business. I can't give you all your dreams. What I can do is I will support you as far as my capability goes. And that was the the kindest and the most real words at the same time that I could get at that time of my life. This was around, I was 18 at that time. And that propelled me into finding what would actually work for me while able to create the wealth that I wanted to do. Because it wasn't that I was ready to compromise on wealth, it was just that I knew that the direction I was going to, or was going in, was not the best for me. So that would that would allow me to actually start to experiment a little bit with the world. And I stumbled onto this organization called ISEC, which is a global organization that was created after World War II by students to create peace in the world. So I ended up in that organization accidentally as I stumbled through trying to figure out what to really do with my life. And as I joined that organization as a volunteer, I discovered that engineering was just one of the ways. The people around me just didn't know any better. So they suggested I should become an engineer or a doctor, but there was a larger world that was doing many different things and was able to enjoy abundance with it, was was able to be happy, be in alignment with themselves. And I was like, hey, that sounds cool. Let me pursue this direction. And that direction would lead me to meet tons of leaders, coaches, trainers who would come in and help out because we were all 18, 90 year old kids trying to say, we'll change the world, mm-hmm. right? So people would de- de- uh, almost donate their times to come and mentor us, show us certain things, share ideas with us. And we got to meet some of the most influential entrepreneurs and businessmen and politicians of our time back in India. And we were like, wow, this is amazing. And we got to learn a lot as, as really young kids. And that also would show me that I can do whatever I want because I got really inspired by all the different leaders and got a lot of success in the student organization. And then I went on to start a company with a company that had hired me after my term as a volunteer with this organization, which was a social network back in India. Now the challenge with that social network back in India is Facebook just entered as soon as we were trying to figure the social network thing because we had seen this pattern in the US and we are like, hey, that's a cool idea. Let's bring it to India. India was still trying to catch up to the rest of the world. The internet wasn't fast enough. The technology wasn't sophisticated enough and so forth. So like, hey, we can build this and we might get an edge over these different networks, which might consider India much later in their journeys. But as we launched the network, Facebook came into the, uh, into, into India as well, which kind of threw us off because basically we had no chance. There was superior technology, superior bandwidth already. There was everything was better in, on Facebook. So we're like, all right, so we lost that fight even starting <laughs> before even we started. And, and that got me to lose a lot of investment of my investors in that project. But that did one very important thing that, will, that would create another chapter of my life, which is showed me the power of internet. It showed me what was possible if you use this tool, the internet, to connect the world in a very different way. And so I said, I need to learn about this thing a lot more. So remember the organization I was a part of, the volunteer organization where I learned about different parts of the world? There were a lot of my friends that I made in that organization who were still working for the organization. And the organization's job was to connect companies with students. So I reached out to one of my friends 
in Malaysia and said, hey, do you know any companies or organizations that might be interesting who are willing to take somebody who has no idea how this whole thing works but would love to learn it? Would they want an intern? And this was me taking basically a, a job cut in a way because I was actually somebody who was a founder of a startup and had the opportunity of becoming other startup founders because they were still interested in investing in me as a person just saying I'm ready to be an intern to learn something. And so I reached out to this guy and he said, hey, you know what? I know the right organization for you. There's a little company. It works out of a bungalow. It has maybe 15 employees, but the founders are ISICers, which is basically people from the same voluntary organizations, okay. uh, organization. And you might actually love their company culture and they f emphasize a lot of learning. This tiny little organization that I was talking about with 10, 15 employees, I, where I joined as an intern was Mind Valley. So this is 10 years ago, 10 years ago, actually, it, almost 10 years ago, as of we are having this conversation, almost a decade ago, I joined I, uh, Mind Valley as a student, as, a, as an intern of learning something, which was this whole gamut of internet. And that exposed me to a whole new dimension of understanding internet. And, and that started my association with Mind Valley. For the next seven years, I would take many different roles in the company, continue to make progress to ultimately become the CEO of the company about in, in about seven years, from an intern to a CEO. And in that journey, I learned to learn. I, I got engaged with a lot of other speakers, authors, trainers, got all the abundance that I wanted, uh, got that house that I always prayed for, never lived in it, <laughs> but got it for my parents, uh, got multiple of the properties and so forth. Like the abundance just really flowed. Uh, but at that point also what happens, like how we are always in life, right? We only see why certain things come in our life to show us something else sometimes. Right. Uh, that was the truth about being the CEO as well. So I had aspired to get this role for the longest time that I was in, in the company, right? Because we always pursue these dreams and we get attached to them so hard. We go, oh, we got to go get that, right? Like we all have that. We all go, oh, yes, I need to become this. But sometimes we put that goal because of how we think that goal looks like. We never really embody it. We don't embody how we would feel in that role. Because once you embody that, you realize if that goal is even important or not. But we don't take the time to feel that. And I didn't take the time to feel that. So I became the CEO of the company. But what I had realized in the journey of becoming the CEO, of working really hard, is that I basically took got my career at the cost of my life. Uh, I started to sacrifice things, which were relationships. I started not really caring about people as much. I started not caring about my health as much. And all of that eventually, yes, gave me the goal that I thought would be the dream to, and it was the dream in a way. It was my career dream. It was my passion dream. I was purpose aligned, but I had lost everything else in the process. And that was more hurtful than anything else. And that realization came in as I was pursuing and being the CEO of the company and as everything else started to fall apart. And as I started to take more time to really realize what's happening in life. Why is everything not looking as wonderful as it should look like at this point? Because I have got everything that I always wished for, prayed for, wanted. But I, and even if I have it, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled. And that got me to start on the new journey that I'm at, which led to the birth of Live Big, which is How to Live a Great Life, which is the book that we will talk about in a little bit. How to Live a Great Life While Building Great Companies while building great missions. So not to sacrifice everything else to create just one this one thing that we put out in the world, but to have a balance of it all and have it all. And that's really the dialogue that I started to experiment with, started to try with, started to research on. And that output is live big. 
in that journey, I also created Evercoach uh, because I, I knew that one of the big areas that people need help, coaches need help, trainers need help, is to be able to coach better, train better, and to be able to build businesses around those training and coaching uh, enterprises that they want to create because that's one thing that there was lack of education around. And I personally, honestly, have all this journey that I just shared, which is from going from a household of 23 to where I am today, it's I'm mostly grateful to my teachers and my coaches because they showed up at the right time, educated me at the right time, had asked the right questions, gave me the right books, gave me the right training. Since because of that, I wanted to contribute back and that led me to create Evercoach. So that's where the story of Evercoach and Live Big, which is today where I am. That's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. I, I want to go back to your youth just to ask you a couple of questions that I'm really curious of. Uh, what was your father's vocation? Uh, my father was an entrepreneur, not a very successful one. Yeah. He's a jeweler. He's a businessman, yeah. A did you say jeweler? Yeah, the jewelry, gemstones. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Is he still in India running businesses? He's still in India, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He He's retired. Uh, yeah. He's very happily retired. I mean, he does do something here and there, but yeah. Okay. Do you ever miss living with 23 people? Do I miss it? Yeah. No, not really. No? <laughs> not even for a second. No. No, I am I am I'm somebody who likes my personal space, my personal personal availability to myself, my ability to be in silence. Uh yeah, so no. Okay, good to know. Um and the other question is uh Isaac, I've heard about this I think within the past week once from a, a friend and I had never heard of this organization before. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, ISEC is, uh, it was started in 1940, I want to say 42, but I could be wrong about the year, it could be 45, mm -hmm. uh, but it was one of those two years or one of those times around World War II where when the world was separating, what had happened was there was some individuals in Austria that, that and, and some individuals in Europe actually, not just Austria, some people from different parts of Europe that said, if we want to create a world that does not have another world war, because remember World War One and World War Two happened really close to each other, right? So these were people who had experienced both these world wars and they were like, if we don't want to have another one, there has to be a better way than drawing country lines and creating walls between the same country. And so because of that, they, they kind of argued the idea of saying, what is the other way of doing this? And one of the perspectives that came is only if we could communicate with each other more effectively we will be able to change the world, right? And that started the organization Colisic. It had a, it's an acronym. It was, it's a French expansion of this word. And I honestly don't remember anymore. <laughs> and they don't use it as well. It was a Socianas this something, something. Uh, but but I, 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 don't, I don't really remember. And, and they don't use it anymore anyway. So it's isec.org is the website. But it was created on the foundation of saying, hey, we could facilitate peaceful world if students or people who are young people communicate with different communities and understand different perspectives. Because if you understand a different person's perspective, if you understand why somebody is in pain or operates in a particular way, you tend to have compassion for them. You tend to say, okay, maybe that's why they are reacting this way. What can I do to fix that instead of just attacking them? which is a very warlord way of approaching the solution of somebody which is who is in pain and maybe is acting up in that in that situation yeah. Isaac said seeked out to to create communication to build bridges instead of barriers between between people and between countries 
And that's really where the organization's foundation lies and still does phenomenal work around that. What they do is they help students be able to be facilitated to travel to different countries temporarily and work with different companies and social bodies to learn from those social bodies, learn from those different companies for a short period of time, anywhere between, I think, right now they allow you to be there for anywhere between four weeks to 12 months or 18 months. So you have a good amount of time to really also as a student get experience because you have your student experience thing that you have to do anyways as a part of university. And it also in turn provides you perspective that otherwise would be very hard for you to get. Because even when you travel to a different country, you end up being at the historical locations and the and the sites to visit. Right, yeah. But when you actually go and work in a country for four weeks, you're actually meeting the people of the country. You're actually listening to the challenges of the people of the country. You're actually making friends in that country. And because of that, it broadens your perspective and it allows you to be able to have a better communication with the rest of the world. That sounds very cool. I'm going to check that out. Uh, I want to learn more about your days at Mind Valley. I know that yeah, you spent seven years there in the early days too, so I'm sure you had a significant part of the culture that was formed from Mind Valley. I have a few friends that have worked at Mind Valley, and also I've met Vision, and I um, am just amazed by their experiences that they have had there. Uh, growing as people, growing as humans, growing as into entrepreneurs, achieving a lot of their bucket list dreams while they're there. And if you don't mind sharing, um, maybe a few of the biggest things or biggest um, nuggets that you got out of working with Mind Valley. So th- there is a there are a lot, and and honestly, I still am part of the Mind Valley group. So I don't know where what what insight you have as of now, but uh, I I built helped build the company, uh, and at that time I was the CEO of the company. But then when I stepped out, I still am co-founder of the company in in context of the different platforms that we have co-created together. So so I'm still there as a part of the team. Now the experiences, it would be hard to say one or two experiences because it's. Uh, it's hard to summarize a decade, but for example, one of the one of the key things that I've I've enjoyed in Mind Valley and I've learned a lot about is to be able to create marketing that actually sounds good to be a part of. Yeah. Right. It's like you actually enjoy creating what you're creating. So so that was something that that I'm fortunate to have co-created with Vision. Vision's like a brother of mine. Uh, and and it was it was awesome. It is I think one of the big shifts that we were able to offer also the community outside of Mind Valley was that is that is that is that shift in ability of people to say hey you don't have to be a sleazy slime ball to be able to build a company. Mm-hmm. You can actually build it on a foundation of great value, beautiful uh, pages and beautiful artistry almost. You can be an artist and build a company at the same time. And that I think is really where one big shift that that I learned to turn about and and I was able to co-create was that um, is the artistry of Mind Valley. Uh, secondly, would be to be able to question everything. I think our ability to to lose everything that we have and let it go really easily is one of the foundational strengths of Mind Valley that people don't realize. We have we have stopped best of the products that make us a lot of money. Not the best of the products, actually, but they make us a lot of money, but don't get the response from the clients or don't get the results of the clients. We kill them faster. 
than anybody else. People usually would never kill a cash cow. But what I've learned about a foundationally beautiful business is that you care for your client way more than you care for your profits. And that's how you build foundationally beautiful, smart, ever-growing, loved businesses and loved uh, companies by the by the clients of the company. And that's what is the foundation of Evercoach, is the foundation of Global Greatness, is the foundation of Libbig, is the foundation of Mind Valley. Is the same. It's to be able to say, hey, listen, if the product doesn't resonate, if the product is not loved, absolutely loved, kill it. It doesn't matter if it makes you money right now. Think about what are you doing for the world. If it's adding value, keep it. If it's not adding value, kill it. It's okay if you make a little less money. How do you measure that value? There's it- many ways to measure it. So firstly is referability of the of the product, which can be measured through something called an NPS score or the Net Promoter Score. You can Google it on what it really means. And I think it is Google that uses that. What is where we took the methodology from is it's called the net promoter score. That basically means how what is the referability of your product? Would prefer would people who who go through the product would be willing to share the product with their friends? Would they invite their friends to actually say, hey, that's a great one you should check out? Right? If our products are not referable we feel that the quality is compromised. What is the refund rate for your products? Are people willing to do the product more often? Uh, How many people are doing multiple products with you? So on and so forth. There are many measures of it. There's a whole matrix that you can design and based on the size of your business, you could use different matrix to be able to really figure out which one's the right one for you. But there are are different, uh, but there are enough matrix around that you can use to be able to see if your products are good or not. Do you have a, an example that you could give or maybe a, a case study or something you guys went through or a product that, that you decided to kill that wasn't adding value? Uh, I wouldn't name the product just for the sake of, okay. I mean, that we are still friends with the person who created it and so forth. And it would be unfair to do that. But there was a particular product that we created where it was very much based on the engagement from the the person who was leading the product. And that product, because it was based on the engagement, was initially really good and then it started to die down because the engagement died down. So it was a great generator for us in context of revenue, but at the at the point when the engagement died down because of the commitment levels of the person that that was responsible for it, we asked ourselves the question of firstly saying, is it fixable? Because that was dropping the NPS score off the product as well. We first asked the question, is it fixable? We tried to fix it. It didn't fix itself. So we said, all right, so then it's time to let it go. And that was a pretty good revenue generator for the company. That's cool. That's great. Any tips on, you talked about enjoyable ethical marketing. I know that's challenging for a lot of people because, um, you know, they'll put their sales into numbers and just think push numbers, push numbers, push numbers. And then you have a lot of, uh, like you mentioned, uh, sleazeball or unethical marketer marketing techniques that are out there and they're all over the internet. They're all over business, really. Um, what stands out for you as ethical, enjoyable, uh, creative marketing as opposed to just say uh, the regular marketing that you usually see with internet companies? So there, there are certain filters that uh, that would be, I think, would be right to give you an idea of what what marketing's good, what marketing's bad. So and I'm going to give you some of the filters because that's all like, I mean, it, that's, that's enough for one to know if their marketing is good or not. So 
Firstly, you must always ask uh, the marketing that you created or the campaign that you're about to run, why are you running it? Uh, and, and a lot of times what happens, the answer is, is scarcity is because of the exact thing that you said is like there are numbers to be met and so let's run something. Mm-hmm. And that that gets you to come from a place of saying I need to push the numbers and so you end up creating marketing that is not really that exciting because all you're trying to do is to say how can I collect a few more dollars out of this, right? And scarcity is never a good place to operate from as a business owner because it always gets you to make products that are sub-quality, creates marketing that's sub-quality, and in life generally, I mean, we all know when we are in a place of scarcity, we don't really are, we're not at our best behavior, right? We are, we are trying to get something that that's not really the right way of getting it. And sometimes trying to get something that we don't even need. And that's just operating from scarcity. So generally in life, it's not a good idea. So it's definitely not a good idea in marketing and business generally. So that's one of the filters that you want to kind of consider when you're creating marketing. The second filter is the marketing and the product that you're creating, is it useful to you? Will you use it? Will you pay for it? Will you like to look at a page like that? And most of the time, that's not how people ask questions. They ask questions of what will convert. They don't ask the question of, will I like to be on this page? What is it that I care about on this page? Why would I use this product? The moment you start asking these questions to yourself, when you start to care, you start to create marketing that works. And you start to also create marketing that looks good, not just is good, but feels good, looks good. You want to be a part of it. You see, if your ad is so fun and so nice that people share it, that's the ad you want to write. You don't want to write the ad that nobody wants to even look at on their feed, right? So that's what you you got to think about when you're creating marketing. Is like, will I show this to my mother? Will I show this to my grandmother? <laughs> will they be excited about this? Not not because of age parity or not age parity. That's not what I'm trying to say here. Uh, because sometimes you're not writing for your mother, but will she like it? Will she? Will she? Will I be open to sharing it, even if I know she's not my buyer, right? And if you won't share your page and your ad and your website with them, don't make it. Just make it a little bit better. It's not. It's not the old times. You know what? If if I if somebody would have said five years ago, hey, it's too hard to make something pretty. It's too expensive. I would have understood that. Today's time, it's not expensive. It's cheap to make really beautiful designs. Uh, we've pushed the line already, at least from uh, for the training companies in in the world. We've kind of like pushed the line and made it like it's kind of expected now for you to have a pretty website because that's what we have done, at least as Valley and Evercoach. We've pushed that line way further for you to be able to settle. I mean, that's at least what we believe. We've just kept pushing it because the moment you feel like we're done with creating beauty on the web, we say, nope, we're going to push it a little bit further. We're going to challenge you to constantly raise your standard. That's our line. That's that's our responsibility as a company. But what I'm asking you as somebody, and by you I mean anybody who's listening to this podcast, uh, is is – to ask that question to yourself, what is it that you're pushing the line on? Because as as humanity, as people who are trainers, coaches, educators, entrepreneurs, if you're not pushing the line, if you're not moving the needle, what are we doing? You gotta move the noodle. You gotta move the needle somehow. You gotta push the line somehow. You gotta create a new reality somehow because that is essential to creating a phenomenal business. I love that mentality. Um, let's talk about Evercoach now. Did you? Did you start Evercoach directly after your days at Mind Valley? Yes, as a part of my transition time in, in Mind Valley, because uh, you know I, I was 
when you're leading a company, it's not that you say, oh, I'm leaving and you leave, right? It takes a little while right. because you're responsible for many, many items. And and so as I was transitioning out, I, I already conceptualized, I was already testing the idea of I have a coach, but I fully started to work on it as like the day after of Mind Valley. But I was already testing that idea. So it wasn't like the website domain was bought the next day or anything like that. The tests were already running. We kind of knew where we wanted to go. I was starting to build my team around that. I had already hired my first employee. And, and Evercoach is, was also in partnership with Mindvalley, is also in partnership with Mindvalley. So it's Evercoach by Mindvalley is how we say the full name. The domain's evercoach.com, but but that's the the reason for that is because it was still in partnership with Vision. I mean, like I said, he's my brother. We do a lot of businesses together. Yeah. So, so Evercoach, you're training coaches that just kind of need help growing their own businesses and growing as entrepreneurs and coaches themselves, right? Yeah, increasing their coaching ability, more importantly, because one of the key reasons coaches don't work out is because they focus too much on building their businesses and too little on their ability to be able to coach. Yeah, that's a good point. So the coaching industry is really interesting because, I mean, really anybody can say, hey, I'm a coach now and slap up a website and start training people on something. And I'm curious, what have you noticed um, in the coaching industry so if somebody is looking to hire a coach, say, um, what would you tell them to look for? Well, first of all, look for actually so the one thing that I ask people to do is whenever they are working with a coach or wanting to work with a coach is is don't look for the first person that you talk to. Keep talking to people because that's the one secret that that needs to happen. And secondly, get them to work with you first. It's almost like, you know, you don't buy the iPhone without looking at it first, right? You feel it, you touch it, you see how it is, you feel how it feels like. It's a bad analogy that I'm making <laughs> in context of human <laughs> beings. But but at the same point of time, if you are going to hire somebody to transform your life, test it out, try their content, try to talk to them and have a 20 minute conversation, see how you feel. And, and most of the time, you will know if a coach is right or wrong for you in the first 20 minutes of conversation that they have with you. Yeah. And you would you would also know, and, and the thing that sometimes people get lost with is credentials. They are not as important as your conversation with them because, and, and this is really, really true, we are human beings. My credentials doesn't, doesn't really mean that I'm capable. It just simply means I have credentials. If, and sometimes if I have credentials, I sometimes will be out of the range of most people. Right. So that's what what you're looking for is capability and capability can only be tested by actually testing capability. Right. So go ahead and coach with them. 20 minutes doesn't have to be two hours, 20 minutes. See how you feel. If you feel good, engage with them for for a little bit. You don't have to sign two year contracts to say, hey, I love how, what we are doing right now. How about we try this for a month, two months, whatever that is that is possible with them. Go ahead and try that and see what happens. And if you like it, continue the journey. Too many people give up on coaches too fast because they hire for credentials, not for capability. That's a good point. So if you're out in it and if you think so, if you're starting a business and you think you want to start coaching, what are some tips that you would give people that want to get into the coaching business? So the first thing that I always advise to people who want to start their coaching business is get some experience in actually learning different coaching abilities. So coaching is a lot about human psychology. It's a lot about understanding how, uh, how energies work, how human beings work, how we operate, what stops us, what moves us, and so forth. So 
go ahead and learn a little bit about that first before you take your first client. And not only your experience will teach you that, you have to actually go ahead and study, which means go take a program, take three of them, learn a little bit. Now, go ahead and test it out and test it out for free. Go ahead and ask your friends if you could have a conversation with them and see if they have a breakthrough or epiphany. Don't don't try to, because this is also what happens. The moment somebody gets a certification or gets some of the trainings, they go, all right, now I'm a coach. Now I'm $200 an hour. No, that's not how it works. Go ahead and try it. The only way of getting becoming better at coaching is to do the coaching. It's like how you get better at writing. There's no other way of getting, getting better at writing than to write. There's no other way of getting better at coaching than to coach. So go out and coach and coach for free. Coach for free for the first three months, the first six months. Get your rapport going. Get how and what are the common patterns that you see. Find out what is it that you're good at and what, what is it that you're poor at and don't and become either better at it or just ignore it or, or don't focus on those areas of life. But go ahead and do the test first. Go ahead and try it first before you get your first paid client. What would you say, Ajit, is the difference in mentalities between a five-figure coach, a six-figure coach, and a seven-figure coach? Their desire to build a six-figure or a seven-figure business, that's it. <laughs> that's a great answer. That's, that's the only difference. There is no other difference. They don't have extra capabilities. They don't have extra talent. They are not more. Sometimes they're more experienced, but that doesn't really matter. That's not the reason why they're six or seven-figure coaches. Okay, so let's talk about your book that you have coming out. And um, the, I was reading through the chapters, and you have some really interesting trap chapters here, and some some ideas. And I want to kind of ask you about it. One of them kind of struck me. It, it's the matrix of practicality. What is that exactly? The matrix of practicality. It, it, the, the the argument or the conversation I wanted to have in the book was that often people go follow your passion. You should have a purpose. And that's where most of the dialogues kind of settle in. And it's like, oh, you are, you're not, you're not passionate enough. You're not purposeful enough. But what I feel is most of the businesses or most of the entrepreneurs don't create an enterprise because they don't think about the practical aspects of business enough as much as they think about their passion and their purpose. They focus so much on their passion and so much on their purpose that they forget that the enterprise is actually a function of the practicality of their passion and purpose. You can be passionate about certain things that absolutely makes no sense in context of business. They're a great passion, but you don't actually create a business around it. It's like it's like this. I'm a coach that I'm passionate about. I'm also passionate about cooking. Doesn't mean that I start a restaurant. Because running a restaurant is completely different to what I am really passionate about, which is cooking or become a chef. No, I'm just passionate about it. So passion alone doesn't do any big justice to you. It has to be aligned with purpose and it has to be aligned with practicality. Practicality is a function of your product, your process and your people. And sometimes people go, oh, this is a big company stuff that you're talking about. Product, process, people. It sounds so complicated. It sounds so corporate. It's not. People make it more complicated than it needs to be. Think about it like this. As a coach, if you are helping somebody, it's a product that you're delivering. And you gotta approach it like a product. You gotta tweak your product like how anybody tweaks their product. You gotta make your product better. You gotta receive a testimonial for it. If it's not working, you gotta find out why it's not working. It's a product. Think about it like a product. Because if you'll think about it like a product, you'll make it better like a product. Nobody, no good company ever stops working on their product. Products always in R&D. 
which is why your coaching is always an R&D. <laughs> so you got to think about your product first and you got to be careful about that. That That's the key element. You don't stop working on your product. Second is people. People, especially in the coaching space, people freak out when I talk about people. They're like, oh, I don't want a team. You don't need a big team. You don't, you're thinking about a corporation. Don't think about a corporation. Even if you want to be a six-figure coach, a seven-figure coach, why would you assign yourself the most mundane task that you don't need to do? like booking appointments or sending an invoice. Right. Get a team, get a bunch of people to do this stuff for you, creates more creative space for you, allows you to be able to create your business a lot more. People are there to support your vision. And we talk about this whole people element also much later in the book, which you may or may not have read. But we discuss all these ideas also in depth in the book. Thirdly is practicality. Practicality is where, sorry, processes. And processes is where, again, people have Big resistance, especially if they've done a corporate job before. They're like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not following no processes. Processes are shit, right? And that's how people approach it. And the reason why they approach it that way is because when processes are only bad, when somebody else made it, everybody loves the process that they built for themselves. Think about it. If you, if you like your walks, if you like a particular training exercise, if you like F45 or Soul Cycle, whatever that is that you like, you love that stuff because that's your process. You made a process out of it. You went, okay, the Soul Cycle, I like it, I love it, I'm gonna go do that, right? And some people go, oh, it's F45, I love it, I love it, I'm gonna go do that, right? But it's, it's the process that they like. It's a process that they created for themselves is I wanna like this or I wanna like that or they don't have either of them and they create their own workout routine if that's something that they are, they are actually excited about or how you brush your teeth. It's a process. You do it the same way every single time. Right. Yeah. You don't come up with a new way of doing the brushing of your teeth every single time. <laughs> and you'll like the way you brush your teeth, right? Or whatever that is. But you get my drift. The process you hate processes when somebody else builds it for you. You'll love the process you build for you. The problem is most of the time we don't set, sit down and say, What's my process? What is it that I like to do? And how will I like to do it replicably so I don't have to think about it next time? I really, I really like that. That's a very good point, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs miss that. So thank you for sharing. The next thing I want to ask you about is you mentioned, I think it's one of the chapters, the concept of flow. Do you dive into this idea of flow that everybody's talking about in the book? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and I try to simplify it a lot more than what sometimes people <laughs> Uh, people make it to be flow is not as complicated. People make there have been researches on it. There have been and it's all beautiful. It's amazing and all of those are amazing books. But I try to simplify it for all of us to be able to go. Okay, how can I get into flow most easily, quickly, right? So what I share is the core concept of flow and really go. Hey, this is the core concept of it. All you have to do is figure these two elements out, which is the which is the challenge of finding challenge and moving your challenge and increasing your capabilities along the same tangent. And if you allow that to happen, you will be in a state of flow. Do you mind sharing that? Because I talk a lot about this on the podcast and both in presentations that I do. I'd love mm -hmm. to hear um, your version of it. So, so the simplified version of flow, something that we can remember and we can follow very often is, is to know that flow is a function of challenge and capabilities. So if you have capabilities that fulfill are marginally less than the challenge that you have, you're always chasing something that is not extraordinarily hard, that gets you overwhelmed and disappointed, but is marginally uncomfortable, so it allows you to move your abilities slightly more. 
a visual representation of that is, is something that is present in the book. And I actually have made a visual representation of every chapter in the book so people can embody those ideas much more easily and remember those ideas much more easily. But basically what we're trying to do to create flow is there are of course techniques to create flow in the moment, but if you generally wanna be in a state of flow at all times, all you have to see your life as is a challenge that you're always pursuing that is slightly ahead of your current capability, something that pushes you to, to, to be a little bit better. And as you create that, you're able to be in a state of flow because you're always pushing for new abilities and new creativity. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then I want to talk to you about one of the chapters, Intuitive Intelligence. I'd like, uh, can you define that for, for us first? So intuition is something that's a fairly taboo word, especially in the entrepreneurial world. And what I believe is all entrepreneurs are intuitive. For that matter, all human beings are intuitive. We just don't give intuition the time and the credit that it needs to be given. Uh, what I talk about in intuitive intelligence is how one needs to be able to firstly understand how intuition really works. It's the is a function of conscious and subconscious, right? 90, 95% of our brain, 95 to 98% of our brain is always subconsciously operating and about 2 to 5% is consciously operating. And that is basically how you breathe and everything comes from your unconscious, right? Uh, intuition is basically your ability to put your unconscious into a state where it connects the dots in a way that it comes out as an intuitive or an epiphany idea, right? This is also the reason why most of your epiphanies or your best ideas come in places like a shower or in the open field while you're walking, right? This is basically your brain being able to process all the information that it's collected to create something that is, that is new and different and, and unique. Now by intuitive intelligence, I mean that you can actually inform your intuition. You can inform your intuition by creating structure around how to really consume knowledge and information that can t be taken into your subconscious as you're going through life. And as all of that is taken in, giving your subconscious the ability to really process all of this by creating space for you to be able to process all of this. I call it the boring time sometimes, creating boring <laughs> time, folding laundry. I know it sounds really silly, and entrepreneurs go, I don't have time for that. But if you don't have time for that, it's like meditation. And if you don't have time for something, the reason why you want to do it is because you do have time for that thing. You will create time for it. You don't. If you say you don't have time for meditation, meditate. That's exactly why you don't have time. If you feel like you don't have time for intuition or time to create boring time, create boring time. You will see the value of it, right? And that's that's. I know it sounds very counter. It feels like. The world is telling entrepreneurs to hustle, 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 and then some more, work 80, 90, 100 hours a week. But really, that's not how you really truly create transformative businesses. And even if you end up creating a transformative business because you're working 100 hours a week, honestly, what's the point of having a miserable life? Right, right, really good right. point. Maybe it is time for us to question that if you wanna create something beautiful at the cost of your life, do we, as the rest of the world, really need that? Yeah, we, we, we do not. We, you can create beautiful things and have a wonderful life. And I really want to debate and advocate for that. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, 
I did. I think that's a perfect way to end a podcast. I want to thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your tips and tricks and all your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about you and what you have going on, where's the best place they can do that at? Well, the best way to the best way to go about doing it is to go to livebigthebook.com, livebigthebook.com. That's where you will see all the options of getting the book and at the same point of time what you will see is all the social profiles that you can connect with me at. You will also be able to, as you get the book, see how you can get special tools that we've designed just for you in a membership area. As you order the book, it will have a special link and you will get to that link. And inside that link, you'll directly be able to communicate with me and talk about these different ideas. It will also give you access to, again, my, all of my social profiles for you to be able to take advantage of everything that we learn and share on our different social profiles. Awesome. Ajit, thank you again so much for all of your time and, and sharing all the knowledge that you have. We're going to wrap up there. Listeners, I want to thank you guys for joining the show once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.